0: When I I was in in high school, uh, my dad got real excited because he finally decided he was going to get one of those custom license plates, you know, those personalized plates that you pay a little extra, and instead of just a random group of letters and numbers, you can put, like, some kind of phrase on there, you know, the, the real clever ones that you have to stare at for a while and try to figure out, what in the world is that supposed to say? And, you know, I'll never forget my dad got this plate, and he he took pride in his cleverness, and he came home, and he had this license plate, and he showed my brother and I, and I've got a picture of that license plate we're going to show here, and this is what was on it, give him six, you know, and <laughs> (laughs) My brother and I, we immediately knew what that was. And, uh, you know, it's like we kind of knew what it was. But, you know, the the weird thing is we lived in Charleston, South Carolina at the time. You know, some of you here in Tennessee, you're looking at that plate, and you're like, man, I know exactly what that is. And others of you were going, I have no idea what that is. And that's how it was in Charleston. You know, we'd drive around Charleston, South Carolina, and people would stop us getting out of the car in the parking lot and be like, what in the world does your license plate mean? My friends would say, why in the world would your dad put that on his car? What does that even mean? You know, there's all these questions about the license plate. But something funny happened. Every year around Thanksgiving, when we would drive— To visit my family in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, it was entirely different. You see, Oak Ridge is really close to Knoxville, Tennessee. And no kidding, as we'd be getting closer to Knoxville, the home of the University of Tennessee Volunteers, people would literally honk their horn at us and give us thumbs up at the license plate. Or we'd get out of the car at the parking lot and people would go, hey, I love your plate, you know? And some of you are going, what in the world is this license plate? Well, you know, give him six was a phrase that was immortalized by John Ward. He's this legendary sports commentator for the University of Tennessee. And every time a volunteer would carry the football into the checkered end zone, John Ward would say, give him six. And the crowd used to go nuts, people listening, this enthusiasm will just well up in their hearts, you know. This is the same guy that immortalized the phrase, it's football time in Tennessee. You know, whenever you hear his voice, when you hear this phrase, a Tennessee fan just feels this deep well of excitement rising up. Today, it's more like a deep well of nostalgia as we remember the days when Tennessee scored touchdowns. But, you know, it's like, (laughs) it is this, it's this phrase that means a whole lot if you're a Tennessee volunteer fan. But if you're not a Vols fan, It doesn't mean a whole lot at all. You know, isn't that the way some phrases are? Have you ever noticed there are are these phrases that mean the world to a certain group of people, but if you're not in that group of people, you know, it's hard to understand why it's such a big deal. You know, we're in this series called The Gospel of the Kingdom. And at the very beginning of the series, we said, hey, we just, we ripped this phrase off, this title, we just ripped it off from Jesus. You know, Matthew chapter four tells us that Jesus went into the villages uh, around Galilee and he began to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Guys, this phrase would have been huge for Jesus's original audience, these first century Jews. This was a phrase that would have been deeply emotional, the good news of the kingdom It would have been inspiring. It would have been hopeful. It even would have been dangerous in the days where the Roman Empire had their thumb on the people of Israel. Jesus begins proclaiming this gospel of the kingdom. But, you know, if we're honest, today we hear the phrase gospel of the kingdom, and you know, much of the world would go, gospel, isn't that like a type of music? Like, what is gospel? You know, if you've been in church for a long time, you might hear the phrase gospel of the kingdom, and and you might go something like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's an important phrase think I should probably feel something about that, but I don't know what I'm supposed to feel, you know, we fake it till we make it, you know. Sometimes it feels like today the interpretation of what that phrase, gospel of the kingdom, is just up for grabs. And guys, this shouldn't, shouldn't surprise us. I mean, we're, we're 2,000 years past the time when Jesus kind of started proclaiming this message. We're, we're in America, you know, we're largely, as Christians, we're a group of Gentiles. We're, we're not Israelites. We don't share that heritage. And, and really— Kingdom language is just weird for us. We live in a democratic nation. You know, the word kingdom at its best stirs up these kind of romanticized pictures of the royal family or your favorite episode of The Crown. And at worst, we, we picture some sort of tyrant king trying to expand his borders, you know, through a through a you know terrible crusade. And these are the images of kingdom when we think of kingdom. The series that we're in, Gospel of the Kingdom, it is intended to help us as a church family a group of people just following Jesus or trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. We're trying to get a firmer grasp on what Jesus meant by the gospel of the kingdom and what his original audience would have heard with this message. And so we started the very first week, we started tracing the roots, you know, and, and just a brief recap, recap, you know, we said that, we said that the, the roots of the gospel of the kingdom go back to this idea of creation and a, a loving father and a powerful king that's at the very beginning. You know, we see this in creation. And then not long after that, we, right in Genesis chapter 3, we see that it's not, there's this loving father and a powerful king, but man, there's also this hate-filled enemy. And this hate-filled enemy, Satan, he's trying to derail and pollute all of God's intents and purposes in the world. And then right on the heels of this hate-filled enemy, we see this hope-filled promise kind of come into the story. Remember that, that promise was this idea that an offspring of Adam and Eve would come, and then his heel would be bruised, but he would ultimately crush the head of the hate-filled enemy. And then last week we started going, okay, well, how's this promise going to be fulfilled? We said, well, a loving Father, He's going to do it through a promised family. He's going to do it through a family. But God is not just loving Father; He's also a powerful King. And so this week we see that uh, out of this promised family is going to arise this promised kingdom. And that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. So Second Samuel seven that was read over just a few minutes ago. It's this. This story centering around this guy named David. Now, just a heads up, between Abraham and David, we've got about a 900-year gap to cover here. So that's a pretty big chunk of time, a lot of water under the bridge between Abraham and David. And, you know, we don't have time to to understand all that, but here's what you need to know. Abraham's descendants did indeed grow into a huge nation. They grew into the nation of Israel, and Israel has this complex history that unfolds between Genesis and the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, you know, there, there's, it's this picture of a nation that is struggling with God. In fact, that's what their name means. Israel literally means struggles with God, wrestles with God. And so, you know, we see this picture of this nation struggling to understand God's promises in the, in the midst of their current circumstances. We see this group of people who's struggling to trust God. They're struggling to obey God. And this plays out in a variety of ways. You've got the Exodus story, which is Exodus, you know, Leviticus numbers, Deuteronomy, those four books. It's like, man, this story where God delivers the Israelites from Egypt and then in the wilderness, they worship idols and they struggle to trust God. It's, it's the, the conquest story where the, Joshua takes the Israelites into the promised land and they struggle to trust and believe that God will do what He says He's going to do. It's the story of the judges where you have this faithfulness, unfaithfulness, faithfulness, unfaithfulness cycle of rulers that rise. and hell. it's this unfolding drama. Of a people group struggling, struggling to obey and trust God and His promises. And guys, all across this story, we find these whispers of a kingdom. We find these whispers of a kingdom. You know, I love this. Uh, we're gonna look first at the whispers of the kingdom, and then we're gonna zoom in on 2 Samuel 7, where we hear it is a bold proclamation of a promised kingdom, and then we're gonna dig into the hope of that kingdom. But we start with the whispers. You know, really, we started hitting on this last week, the whispers of the kingdom. You know, we looked at several passages where we saw this promise to Abraham. And one of them was in Genesis chapter 17. And in the context of this verse, you know, God is looking at Abraham and he's going, hey, a great nation's going to come from you. But in in chapter 17, verse 6, he says, listen, I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. And then again, in Genesis 17, verse 16, he's talking about Sarah this time. God looks at Abraham. He says, I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. God is going, hey, it's not just that your family's going to become this great nation. It's like royalty is going to come from your family. It's this incredible promise that God gives to Abraham, but it's just a whisper yet of what he's going to do. And there's several other passages between Genesis and 2 Samuel that whisper of this kingdom. And we'll, we'll take a closer look at some of those on our deep dive this coming Wednesday night. We'd love to have you, 8 p.m. on Wednesday. Uh, you can find a link for that Zoom call at ethoschurch.org forward slash daily. And uh, we'll just dive in a little more at a few other passages where we we'll see those whispers. But I just want you to see, like, there's this whisper. Whisper of a kingdom. And by the time we get to 2 Samuel 7, it is no longer a whisper, it is like a bold proclamation of this promised kingdom. Now, in 2 Samuel 7, to set the stage of what's happening here here, Israel is now in possession, a partial possession of this land that God has promised. And David is this king that's risen to the throne, and even that is a complex story. We learn in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that that the reason Israel has a human king is because they've rejected God as king. It's this complex story. But God is faithful. He meets them where they are, and he raises up this guy named David, who he says is a man after his own heart. And he's sitting on the throne. In 2 Samuel 7, David has one of those unusual moments as a king where it says God's given him rest on every side from his enemies. He's got this temporary peace that he's enjoying. And and David, out of the goodness of his heart and his love for God, he's like, man, why do I live in this amazing palace? And God is still like abiding in this tent, You know, they were worshiped in a tabernacle. And so David thought, I'm going to build a glorious house for God. And I love what happens in chapter 7. It's very similar to what happened with Abraham last week. God is going to come to David and say, hey, I recognize that you want to do something good for me, but I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do for you. This is just the graciousness of God. Every time we think we have something to offer God, he shows up and he goes, no, I've got so much more for you. You can't bring me anything that I need. I've got everything that you need. And so this this moment in chapter 7, you know, it's similar again. What happened with Abraham? Remember last week, Abraham, he brought the animals to God. He cuts them. He thinks he's going to walk between them. And God says, no, no, Abraham, I'm the one. I'm doing this. I'm going to walk between the animals. And now God's going to look at David, and he's going to say something very similar. Look with me in chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 10 and kind of the first half half of verse 11. This is the, the promise that God begins to give David. He says, now I will make, uh, sorry, verse 10, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and will no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. And so here's this first kind of promise of a kingdom that God gives to David. He says, listen, I'm gonna give this nation a place. Now, this should sound a little bit familiar from last week. It's like we're hearing this echo of the promise to Abraham. Remember the three parts, the land, offspring, and blessing that God said to Abram in in Genesis 12? Here's God coming to David. He goes, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give my people a place where they will enjoy peace on every side. And then he keeps going. Keep reading in verse 11. The Lord declares to you, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. I love this, David's like, God, I'm gonna build you a house. And God's like, no, I'm gonna establish a house for you, David. He says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Here again is the second part of this promise. God goes, David, I'm going to give Israel a place. It's like the land. He says, God, and David, I'm going to give you offspring that's going to come after you, and I'm going to seat him on your throne as your heir. Then you keep reading. Look in verse 13. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. Jump down to verse 16 with me. Your house And your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Guys, this is an incredible promise that God gives to David. He was like, I'm gonna give you a place. He said, I'm gonna raise up your offspring and I'm going to set up your throne so that it will last forever, no expiration date. It's like God is saying to David, Hey, in line with the promise that I made to Abraham, I'm not finished working, I will provide. I'm going to give the place. I'm going to raise up your offspring. And out of this family, I will raise up a kingdom for whom there will be no expiration date, a forever throne over my people in your family, David. It's this incredible promise. Now, there's a lot of other stuff happening in this text. You know, we don't have time to dive into all of it uh, today. Again, come to Deep Dive Wednesday night. But, you know, what I want us to see is, is if you keep reading the story, because it's this bold proclamation of a forever kingdom, And if you keep reading the story, at first it seems like it's going pretty well. You know, you read on in the story and David's son Samuel, uh, excuse me, David's son Solomon will eventually ascend to the throne. David dies and his son Solomon takes the throne. It's like, okay, this is going pretty well. Solomon does actually build a house, a temple for God. And it's like, okay, everything's going as planned. But then, you know, at the end of Solomon's reign, man, the kingdom gets split. It's like you end up with this like crazy civil war, two different kings take the seat. And from there on, you see wicked kings rising to power, some good, but a lot that don't give a rip about who God is. And then suddenly you see other nations coming in to attack them. You're like, God, what about that forever peace thing? And then eventually both of those kingdoms, Israel and Judah, they both get squashed by other empires. And the Israelite people get carried off into captivity and you're left going, wait, wait, God, God, you made this promise forever. What was all that forever talk? If now suddenly the kingdom is gone and we don't see it anymore. And you feel this sense of despair. And in the middle of all of these crazy circumstances that seem contrary to God's promise, God will send prophets to speak to the people of Israel. It's like he's saying to them, hey guys, in the hard circumstances, don't forget my promises. They're still, they're still true. And through these prophets, God is going to further flesh out for the Israelites what this promised kingdom actually looks like. He's going to expand the horizons of what the promised kingdom looks like. And so this brings us kind of to that third point. You know, we talked about the whispers of the kingdom, the bold proclamation of the promised kingdom. And now we come into the hope, the hope of the kingdom. You see, the whispers and the shout, they start to form this substance of the hope of the Jewish heart that the Jewish people began to long for. And through the rest of the Old Testament, you see the prophets and the Psalms actually bringing remarkable clarity as to what it is that the Jewish people were actually hoping for by the time Jesus stepped on the scene. And guys, in reality, it should inform what we are hoping for as followers of Jesus. Uh, I'm going to give you five, five characteristics that we see of this kingdom. Okay, when you read through the prophets, when you read through the Psalms, there's kind of five characteristics that the Jewish heart was longing for in this hoped-for kingdom. Okay, the first one is there's going to be several passages here. I encourage you to write them down. We're not going to spend a lot of time on any one of these. Write them down and go dig into the Word and look at these yourself. You know, the first first characteristic of this uh, hoped-for kingdom was uh, this messianic expectation. Now, that sounds kind of big. All it means is they were waiting for a Messiah, an anointed one, a king. There's lots of passages that we can look at to see this. You know, one of my favorites is in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 starts by talking about how the kings of the earth are raging against God and His anointed one. That word there is the Hebrew word Messiah. And in verse 6, this is how God replies to the nations raging. He says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. I have become your father, ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possessions. Because this was like the hope, was that there is this anointed one, Messiah figure, a son of God who would sit on a throne on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and the nations would be made his inheritance. You see this again really clearly in Daniel chapter seven, we don't have this verse to put on the screen, but Daniel seven is this vivid vision that Daniel gets, where he says it's like one like a son of man, coming on the clouds, and he approaches the Ancient of Days, and it's this crazy moment in verse 14 where the Son of Man is given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and it says that all nations worship him. So this is the first characteristic in the the hoped-for kingdom, is this messianic figure, this messiah who will come and sit on the throne. The second one we'll look at is this this idea of a forever government. Now, a lot of us go, forever government? That sounds terrible. Like, politics are awful. I don't want to talk that government. But guys, this is a forever government that is founded on justice and righteousness. We see this in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, capture this hope so clearly. You know, this is one of those verses we read at uh, Advent and Christmas all the time. But listen to these words. Prophet Isaiah says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's that messianic expectation. But listen to this. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Guys, How many times this year and how loudly have we heard the cry for justice? Do you know this is the longing of the human heart, all of us. Every time we see injustice, we're just going, man, if only there was a ruler or a government that could actually deal with this rightly and justly. It's what we're longing for. It's what the Jewish people were longing for as they waited for this hoped-for kingdom. And so it's a messianic expectation. It's It's a forever government that is founded on righteousness and justice. The third thing, it's this picture of, of all nations submitting to God's ways. Now, there's some beautiful pictures of this. You know, one of my favorite is in Micah chapter four. In you know, the first four verses, I'm gonna read through these really, really quickly here. Micah chapter four, starting in verse one, listen to this. In the last days, it's at the end of all things, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob, because He will teach us His ways, so that we may walk in His paths. And the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And He will judge between many peoples. He will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide and they will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. No longer will nation take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore." And he goes on to describe this, no more famine, no more hunger. Guys, this is the the picture of all nations streaming up to be taught by the Lord himself. Every nation being discipled in the ways of Jesus, and it's not like they're being forced to do it. There's this ignorance, they're only going, hey, come on, let's go. Let's be taught by the Lord Himself. It's this picture that as they do this, it is the end of wars everywhere, that war will cease on the earth. What an incredible hope. So it's this messianic expectation, a forever government built on justice and righteousness, all nations submitting to God's ways. Number four, it's this picture of the world covered with the knowledge of God. I don't have to dive into this too long. Isaiah 11 verse nine captures much of the same picture that we just read in Micah, he's talking about, hey, no one's going to harm each other, no one's going to destroy on my holy mountain. But then he says, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth just like the seas or the waters cover the seas, as the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. The last one, the fifth one, I love this, guys, that God himself will be alleviating and dealing with all the pain of the world. Look at Isaiah chapter 25. I love this passage. Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6. Isaiah says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. What is the shroud? The sheet that covers all nations. What is He talking about? He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. Guys, what a beautiful picture that God Himself will step in, wipe every tear from every eye. Now this, this should sound somewhat familiar to us. Guys, this is what's held out to us in the book of Revelation, did you know that? This is the picture that John is revealed in the book of Revelation, and I don't wanna get ahead of ourselves in the series because we're gonna get there, but I do want us to feel the magnitude of this hope, guys. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking because this is not this picture of what, what the kingdom is. It's not just pie in the sky. It's not angel babies with clouds and harps sitting on a cloud. No, it is all things made new. It is this good king, this forever government. It is the entire earth knowing the goodness of God, all nations being discipled, war ceasing, no more famine, no more sickness, no more death, and God himself wiping every tear from every eye. Man, if that, if that doesn't make our heart burn, what will? And guys, it is, it is against this backdrop that a thousand years later, Jesus will step on the scene and he'll start proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. <laughs> after a thousand years of the Jewish people waiting in expectation, after hundreds of years of trying to trust the prophets that God's promises are real, Jesus steps on the scene and he begins to go, hey, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This thing is imminent. It is coming. This is the language the prophets always used to talk about the day of the Lord, and now Jesus is here, and he's proclaiming. Can you imagine what the first century Jews and the disciples were feeling? Man, it's like walking into a sports bar three blocks from and Stadium in Knoxville on opening day of football season and going, it's football time! And everybody goes, and Tennessee, and everybody goes nuts. But like times a thousand, it's so much bigger. Man, I, you know, I think a lot of times the disciples and the Jews of Jesus' day are kind of made out to be pretty dull. Like, they're just kind of dumb. They just missed it with Jesus. But guys, if we're honest, you know, Jesus didn't do a whole lot to quell the excitement that they would have been feeling about this kingdom. You know, early on in this ministry, Jesus takes these disciples who would have had this hope of this kingdom that we've been talking about, and he sends them out and he goes, hey guys, go, go proclaim the kingdom. And while you're at it, you're going to perform miracles. You're going to raise the dead, heal the sick, cast out evil spirits to confirm that this is actually the thing we're talking about. It's incredible. You know, Jesus explicitly said things to his disciples that would have only stoked the flame in their hearts for the kingdom they longed for. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, listen to these words that Jesus says. He looks at the 12 disciples and he says, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things... When the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. This is pretty specific and pretty physical. Like, Jesus is going, hey guys, you you know this thing you're waiting on? You know, guys, today is, is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day we remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey to shouts of praise and you can read about that in you know, Matthew 21, Mark 11, but guys, it's this incredible moment, not just because Jesus rode in on a donkey, but it was the fulfillment of yet another prophecy. You know, in Zechariah 9.9, 9, the prophet Zechariah said, "'Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, "'righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey.'" Guys, this would have just been like, it would have stirred up that hope for kingdom and everyone who saw it. By the time Jesus gets to the Last Supper, in Luke 22, man, the, the kingdom expectation would have been fever pitch. Jesus doesn't squash it. Instead, in Luke 22, he looks at his disciples. He says, guys, I won't drink of this fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. Man, they are just, it is like it is through the roof. The hope and the expectation, the emotion, the, the intensity of what they're longing for. And then Jesus dies. He's arrested, he's beat, he's betrayed, and he dies alone. Can can you feel the weight of disappointment, of confusion, of disillusionment that the disciples and all those who follow Jesus must have felt when they see Jesus hanging on a cross and dying? The one that they believed was the Messiah hanging on a cross and dying. Guys, the weight of that disappointment, the weight of the disillusionment, it should help illuminate why the resurrection is such a big deal. Guys, it's the moment where, where death takes a blow, where hope gets restored, and the one they believe to be the Messiah comes back. Guys, it's huge. You know, I don't want again. Don't want to get ahead of us in the story. Next week, we are going to look at resurrection. We are going to celebrate resurrection because it is major. But as we head into Easter next week, guys, this promised kingdom that was to come through a promised family. This is the backdrop for the story. The backdrop for our story. From Palm Sunday and the death of Jesus, we find the disciples struggling to reconcile God's promises with their current circumstances. Have you ever felt that before? Have you ever struggled to reconcile the promises of God with what you see happening in the world around you or with your current circumstances? Have you ever felt that weight? That's what the disciples were feeling. You know, it's pretty easy for us to feel honest. I mean, you guys, we're coming out of a year a year where our nation's been divided over issues of justice, where we've all been crying out, man, if only there was somebody, if there was only there was a solution to the injustice we see, if only it was there, it's the cry of our hearts. We're coming out of a year where more than half a million people just in our country alone have lost their lives due, due to a virus that's still wreaking havoc and causing all kinds of problems, sociologically, politically, economically, it's just wreaking havoc. Have you ever had moments where you've been thinking, wait, God, what about all of the promises? You know, next week, guys, what we're going to see is that the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of what is to come. It's God saying, hey, I, I know, but guys, listen, I just raised him from the dead. Like, I've got this. My kingdom's coming. My kingdom is at hand. Death itself can't even stop me. And then he's going to go on. He's going to give the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at all these things. And the Holy Spirit is this deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. It's going, hey, that kingdom thing you've been longing for, it's still coming, it is coming. But this morning, Palm Sunday, as we prepare our hearts for resurrection, I, I, I want us to take a time to just feel the weight. As we take communion this morning, we don't have to pretend that we don't feel the weight of the world. You know, I, I actually think feeling the weight of the world turns in us a longing for Jesus to come a longing for him to bring the fullness of his kingdom. And it fuels us to want to proclaim this good news. That Guys, we know it's coming. We know it's coming. Turn to Jesus. It's coming. It fuels in us the ability to live it out, that hope fully right here and right now. So this week around communion, I want us to sit in the longing. I want us to sit in the longing for some of us, you know, this, this will be personal. You're, you're in, the, in the middle of feeling pain, feeling heartache. Maybe you've lost someone you loved. Maybe you've lost your job. There's financial uncertainty. Maybe you've been battling mental illness or loneliness, and you're going, man, I, I, I would love to see Jesus come in the middle of this, I long for him. For some of you, the longing is, is more global, it's bigger, you're heavy hearted by the pain you see in the world. We look at our week and we go, man, another mass shooting. Ugh. You're, you're heavy hearted by the racial injustice you continue to see. You're, we're we're heavy hearted because we look around and, and political leaders can't seem to get it together. There's wars or threats of wars on every side. It's like, oh man, North Korea started testing missiles again. Ugh. This morning as we come to the body and the blood of Jesus, Guys, we're not that far removed from the disciples who were disappointed. They felt the weight of it. They were confused by their circumstances in contrast to the promises. And this morning, as we take in communion, as we prepare our hearts for the hope, I want to just encourage you to reflect on and to share the things in your life, in this world, that make you long for Jesus. And then share them together. And then just pray that simple prayer, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let your kingdom come. So I'm gonna pray for you as you get ready for communion, and we'll have just a simple instruction for communion that'll come up on the slide. I love you, Ethos Church. I hope this gospel of the kingdom stirs your heart to burn with a longing for King Jesus to come. Let's pray. Lord, you are amazing. Lord, I confess that this good news of the kingdom sometimes feels too big, too good to believe in. But Lord, we choose to believe. We thank you for the evidence of the resurrection, the first fruit, the evidence of the Holy Spirit that deposited in us, guaranteeing the fullness of our inheritance. We thank you, Lord. I pray now though, Lord, as we take communion, as we gather around the body and the blood of Jesus, Lord, through the places where we're feeling the weight, would you comfort us through the communion with the saints? Comfort us as we take the body and blood of Jesus by communion with you, the King of kings, the one who's on the throne, the one we long for, the one we wait for, the one on whose shoulders the government rests, the one whose kingdom will never end. Help us see you this morning, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I love you, Ethos. Let's take communion together.